Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broader reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Paulina Colata, Lecturer in Religious Studies at Manchester University, to discuss lived religion and rural Japan, exploring the active role Buddhism and its institutions play in day-to-day life in such issues as rural depopulation. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Paula. Thank you for joining us in the show. Thanks for having me, Oli. Um, it's a pleasure to be part of the podcast. Thank you. So, first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your field and how your interests have brought you there? Sure. So, um, so the main focus of my work is religion and religious change in contemporary Japan, and I specifically uh, focus on Japanese Buddhism, where I sort of investigate community networks, economic structures, gender relations. I'm really interested in materiality, heritage, also death care. And um, the context that interests me the most is that of rural Japan and the context of depopulation and the impact that the depopulation and sort of regional socioeconomic struggles have on Buddhist institutions and communities that host them. And I'm a little bit of a um, disciplinary hybrid, I would say. Um, I'm trained in Japanese and religious studies with a sprinkle of social anthropology on top. So I have done my BA in Japanese studies at the University of Manchester. And during that time, I studied abroad at Kyoto University, where I also um, did a BA uh, dissertation research project. Um, And that focused on sort of interplay of Buddhism and tourism. So so that interest was sort of already there. Um, And as I was doing that work, I actually visited temples across Kyoto, Kansai countryside and Shikoku. And I became sort of more and more interested in the question of survival of Buddhist communities in regional Japan. Japan. So some of the questions that emerged then brought me to focus my doctoral work on the impact of demographic and regional transformation on Buddhist communities in rural Japan. And specifically, I conducted my ethnographic fieldwork in rural Hiroshima Prefecture, where I was able to sort of explore this question of how people both continue and fail to belong in, in what we might understand as kind of the state of crisis. So um, I guess that was my disciplinary and sort of interest journey, um, if that if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've already mentioned this, but uh, the religion you focus on in your research is Buddhism in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. And although this coexists with Shinto, the national faith of Japan, if you will, could you share with us why you decided to focus on Buddhism rather than Shinto? Sure. Um, okay, so so that's actually quite interesting because my journey with Japanese religion started with Japanese mythology when I was about 12 or 13. I was this odd kid whose mum thought it was a good idea to get them a translation of Japanese myths um, as a birthday gift. So, <laughs> so w- what I think has attracted me to Buddhism, though, uh, was its sort of relationship with death and the tension I encountered between um, Buddhism, sort of its embeddedness in, in this worldly practices and, and, and lives of people and how it's sort of conceived through the prism of 
its textual tradition and what it means to be Buddhist on the ground, um, so to speak. So, so this includes how textual traditions sort of inform the practice, but also looking at institutions, economics, kind of spiritual nourishing, ritual practice, and so on. But I also got really drawn towards the discussion on crisis and disconnect and sort of decline in Japanese Buddhism. And I think um, partially I was curious to see how much life is left in, in the funerary tradition that is supposedly on its way out. And I think I am just sort of naturally drawn to like morbid and doomsday scenarios. And, and maybe <laughs> maybe that's what um, attracted me in, in, and kind of pushed me in that direction. So let's, let's unpack this concept of lived religion. Uh, to those of us who have grown up in secular societies, this can be an unfamiliar concept given even traditionally religious practices such as marriage are becoming increasingly disassociated with religion in certain nations. What practices constitutes lived religion in rural Japan in your ethnographic experience? Okay, sure. So maybe let's start with the concept I itself. So lived religion is is actually very interesting. Um, and, and as a concept, it, uh, it actually emerged in sociology of religion with scholars such as Robert Orsi, um, David Hall, Nancy Ammiman, and Meredith Maguire, obviously among the host of others, um, who were sociologists that sort of in early 1990s developed the concept and sort of started advocating for more ethnographic studies of religion. So broadening the focus from institutions to practitioners and from texts to sort of material world of religion, including including things like economic structures, but also pop culture and, and, and that sort of thing. So what lived religion often refers to is focusing on how practice and belief operate across and are experienced sort of in the many domains of everyday individual and also community life, because religion cannot and should not be separated from the other practices of everyday life. So sort of, you know, from pop culture through fashion to politics and so on. And I think we're seeing that now. I mean, we've, we've seen, we see it throughout history. And I think now it's, it's kind of knocking at our doors um, very strongly too, with everything that is happening, uh, both in Japan and um and in the United States and so on, and here too. But interestingly, from an anthropological perspective, which is kind of somewhere where, let's say, my methodological uh, heart <laughs> uh, belongs, ethnographers have been sort of doing just that for quite some time. So anthropology is, after all, a study of people, of what makes us human, and sort of the complexity and nuance of social life by really focusing on particular contexts. Um, so taking the time to learn about people's lived experience, their perspectives and relationships, and also then taking that and situating them within sort of broader historical, cultural, and political economic structures and processes. So lived religion is religion as experienced through people's lived experiences and relationships, um, which then need to be contextualized and situated within sort of these broader historical, cultural and political economic structures and processes. And I think it's really interesting um, when I think about this idea of working from ground up or looking from the perspective of the lived religion, is that in my own work, it really emerged very strongly, this notion of looking at religion and or religious communities or Buddhism specifically as an imagining 
it as a network, both as a network of different things that are interconnected, but also the processes that then drive that network, that make that network um, come to life and what that means. So you asked as well as part of the question, sort of what practices actually constitute lived religion in rural Japan in in terms of my own ethnographic work. And I think there is all sorts of ways that Buddhist institutions and individuals who are running those institutions, the Buddhist families, the way that they are kind of interconnected with the local communities. And on one hand, they are members of those local communities. As a family, they belong to kind of the structure of the village, to the sort of regional structure and the kind of broader community that has nothing to do with Buddhism. (laughs) So, you know, they would be involved in in all sorts of uh, local practices, like, you know, showing up in the morning for cleaning up local community. and, And even though you might be excused if you need to do a home visit and there is no one from the household who might be able to represent the family doing that sort of work um, for the community, you are nonetheless sort of implicated and you have got that responsibility there regardless of your Buddhist professional status, if that makes sense. On the other hand, there is a whole host of ways that Buddhist temples become part of the communal practice. So, for instance, as part of the communal responsibility, so maybe for just a little bit of a context, so I did my work in rural Hiroshima prefecture in kind of the northern parts, which for me was very important to be sort of based in the community that is experiencing the demographic and the sort of depopulation crisis or, or the implications of the changes that are that are happening around them. Uh, but at the same time, community that is not quite yet in a very dire state, because I was really specifically interested to see sort of what it means to belong to the community that is facing that sort of future, that maybe is not there quite yet but it is imagined it's 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 starting to be sort of in people's bones if we were to use that um it's starting to call home and i think that uh, one of the very important ways that buddhism still is present within those communities that it helps people to deal with the conversations around death dying and illness as well so one of the ways that buddhism um, is part of um, that experience that everyday experience is for instance through doing regular memorialization services so i accompanied the local priests um, pretty much every morning to go to one of the parishioners homes and participate in in the omairi in the in the memorial service for the for the deceased person for the for the ancestors and that was something that really surprised me I didn't expect for those rites to be such a recurring theme and that it was actually something that we were doing every day but another aspect is you know Buddhist temples in rural contexts they very often run in the summer they might run a summer school for the kids to make sure that kids are looked after that they do their homework during the summer holidays when they're not in school and that is something that pretty much even though the number of children in the rural Hiroshima and just across the rural Japan is is, um, staggeringly uh, kind of diminishing and lots of schools are closing. That is something that has been kept as part of the practice or part of the way that Buddhist temples or or Buddhism in a way (laughs) is is part of, of community 
life. And I think that interestingly, as part of these summer schools, there is obviously the time for doing homework, but there is also time for learning what it means to be Buddhist or what it means to sit in seiza and what it means to use your rosary, learning uh, Buddhist stories um, and that sort of thing. So using puppet theatre, for instance, to convey some of these stories. So there were a host of different um, techniques that I experienced um, in in different um, rural temples in, in Hiroshima. So these are just some tiny examples. But another thing which I think is really important, and I have written about it, is looking at the role that heritage that is based within the local temples and how that or preservation of that heritage is also part of what it means that Buddhism is part of the local concern or that Buddhism is still alive or or considered to be of some value, of some importance within the local communities and how some of the symbolism goes behind Buddhist statues that might be stored there, the Buddhist temples, the buildings themselves, the bell towers and so on and so forth. And kind of where does the money come from to renovate that? Because I think the economics is part of uh, both religious practice, but also just existence within the the local communities and also national level sort of structures that follow. But I think that's an important thing that in a way, it didn't surprise me, but it surprised me in a way how much people were prepared, how people were able to mobilize in order to support that and how they perceived the fact that they are working for restoration, for instance, of the, um, uh, their local temple bell tower or um, refurbishment of tatami mats within the temple main hall, how that was both perceived as something that was part of Buddhist practice, something that they were doing in order to maintain their connection to the temple, but also to the dead people and to the ancestors uh, within their family. So kind of part of that broader cycle Uh, but on the other hand it was also part of kind of keeping the community alive so I think maybe these will be the main examples um, because I've been talking for (laughs) too long now uh, maybe but I'll stop here and and yeah you let me know (laughs) yeah I got a few questions from that Um, first off I want to just jump on the heritage aspects given Mm -hmm. that through my own research, I've become very aware of how the Bunkasai, the uh, Japan Agency for Cultural Affairs, mm-hmm. it sees heritage in these rural communities as a means of revitalizing these communities, as a means of using tourism to attract money back to these rural areas. And my, from my own time traveling in Japan, Buddhist artifacts are very often quite coveted, quite valued heritage items and buildings. So does money from the Bunkazai goes to these Buddhist communities and in turn, does that allow them to support their communities? Yeah, that's an excellent question and I wish that was the case. (laughs) Sure, um, heritage recognition is one of the ways that both rural communities are trying to do that and also the way that people are imagining because I think the idea is that behind the heritage status is going to come tourism because um, giving someone status of recognition whether it's at regional level at city level at national level or even UNESCO level it doesn't actually come with a promise of funding or contribution towards restoration 
not directly. It actually is very clearly stipulated in the sort of bylaws of, of that sort of recognition that the responsibility for the upkeep of the heritage, whatever the item might be, um, is actually resting with the community that with the owners. So whoever the owners <laughs> of the heritage are. And that's where the responsibility uh, rests with. So obviously with the Buddhist context, the fact that those elements are part of the Buddhist temple's architecture, they might be part of the gardens because there is a recognition of landscape, or it might be specific Buddhist statues, you know, from Heian period or whatever. They are still ownership of the temple. And so therefore they are responsibility of the Buddhist temple. And it makes it really complicated how Buddhist temples could even apply for funding from the government or from the um, at the local level, the city level, because there is a separation of the state and religion in Japan. There's a legal separation, right? So yeah. it makes it very complicated. And from my own ethnographic work, what it ends up being is that the responsibility for this rests with the communities, because obviously temples rely on local communities for funding and their upkeep, their running. And there is an emotional connection to an emotional responsibility that is far more important to the communities. And I'm not saying that some Buddhist temples were not able to use heritage as a way of attracting tourism, but very often the sort of rural communities um, that are struggling with depopulation where transport links are being disabled, where roads are not being maintained correctly, heritage recognition gives the hope of something coming your way. But if you don't have the basic infrastructure because the region is struggling, then I'm not sure how that can actually bring that hope of tourism or bring that sort of investment. Yeah, it seems like it's this policy seems to encourage Buddhist monks to become tourism managers in, a, in some bizarre twist. Um, yeah, but, and I, mean, I, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, tourism has always been a big part of Buddhism. Uh, we may call it pilgrimage, but, you know, um, <laughs> but that has always been an important aspect and an, an, an important economic drive too. So, so that's not to discredit that um, in, in a way. Uh, and I don't think there is any, um, it makes it any less Buddhist. But I think if we look at the practical level of what that means is that it very rarely comes with the rewards that are hoped for in, in terms of monetary financial kind of injection to preserve something mm. or to restore something. Yeah, I see. To return to the focus of this interview, um, sure. <laughs> belonging has been a recurrent theme in your ethnographic research of contemporary Japanese Buddhism. In studying the realities of local Buddhist temples, what has been the demographic of people seeking belonging through Buddhism? Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, well, obviously, through the nature of geographical sort of focus of my work, uh, where I work in sort of regional Japan, the demographic focus has been very much on aging regional communities. And it's really interesting when we're talking about kind of who belongs uh, to a Buddhist temple in Japan, especially in the rural context, because in Buddhism in Japan, you belong through your household. You don't necessarily belong as an individual. So you have certain responsibilities ascribed to a household that needs to sort of represent 
their belonging, their ancestry, maintained a connection to a local Buddhist temple through that. And we're looking back here to, in historical terms, especially when to, in Tokugawa period, where compulsory household affiliation, the, the Danka system became the kind of the norm for maintaining your Buddhist affiliation. And even though this has been the legalized, and of course, we don't have that as a, as a legal status or um, necessity for belonging, because even in major period, you know, you had to have a Buddhist funeral that was still part of the law. And so we don't have any of that, but nonetheless, belonging still happens through the household. And usually it's the older members of the household that then take on the temple family representative roles because they are considered as the ones who have more time on their hands to fulfill all of the different obligations that a local temple might require. So, you know, regular cleanings, attending regular monthly or bi-monthly or four times a year preaching sessions that are um, staged at temples. So attending those preaching se sessions, but also preparing those preaching sessions. So the, the definitely demographic group is more, you know, I, I learned a new meaning of the term young. <laughs> When someone said to me, like, ah, oh, yes, you have to meet so-and-so-san. Yeah, she's in her 50s. You'll get on. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, you know, someone in their 60s is still considered young. So even someone in the 70s is still considered young in, in my context. But, yeah, the, the, demographically speaking, it's been definitely the older uh, generations. But this is also comes with the nature of the responsibility that such a connection might have. That said, very often it's that all the generation of Buddhists that are, the, and this is part of your way of being Buddhist in my context, is that you then educate your family and you bring them to the temple. So if there are certain events like New Year or they might have the first visit to the temple celebration, which, they, which I attended twice in August whilst I was doing my fieldwork, it's kind of introducing the children that have been born to the family for the first time to the Buddhist temple and kind of they receive their first Buddhist rosary and so on and so forth. So, so it's that all the generation that are sort of brokers between the temple and the younger generations or younger people in their family. And I think that there is that connection there is that connection there. But I've also seen people, you know, engaging with the local temple, even though they might be living in the cities, but they come back, for instance, for funerary rites or for the memorialization rites um, for the elderly parents. Uh, and they might keep that connection going for that reason, that sort of, you know, remembrance um, aspect. So you see but, this yeah. continuing through the younger generations? I think for now, yes. It's a fragile, <laughs> it's a fragile <laughs> structure, but at the same time, it has allowed Buddhism to an extent to continue. And I think there is that idea that uh, when I, I was doing some interviews during my fieldwork with young people, uh, and when I mean, mean young, I mean like, um, you know, from six-year-olds to 18-year-olds, and I was asking them, you know, so so what do you think about and, and they very much enjoy going to the temple actually during the summer um, summer schools or during um, summer festivities or you know whatever might be happening because they will get to you know ring the bell at midnight or whatever or they will get sweets. So there is that kind of association of temple being to an extent 
a lot of my um, interlocutors talked about how it was more so in the past and now temples are a little bit less inviting places, but it will depend from temple to temple as well. But what I'm trying to say is that the young people were saying, uh, I said, oh, you know, so do you see yourself um, keeping your connection with this temple, you know, in whatever way? And they were saying, well, yeah, probably until I'm attending summer school. And then after that, I won't. And then maybe when I'm in Obachan or Ojichan, I'm going to come back <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and reconnect. And I think there is that. Sorry, for our and, listeners, Obachan or Ojichan means uh, grandmother or grandfather. Yeah. So w- when I'm sort of older or old. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, but definitely the pre- predominant, pre- predominantly the, the main group is definitely elderly who are, you know, leading on, on that engagement. Yeah. This leads on to our next question quite nicely. So in your in your writings, you've spoken of the role Buddhist temples play in keeping communities together in rural areas where depopulation has become an urgent problem. Could you expand on how Buddhist centers actively engage with these communities in the context of this crisis? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I have given a few examples already of this sort of engagement, but um, I, I want to maybe start by saying... I wouldn't necessarily f- say that Buddhist temples act as community centers to local communities. They, they're not necessarily the glue, if that makes sense. They're not at the center of community life. They are very much on the periphery of it. It doesn't mean they're not important. And it doesn't mean that there are not groups of people for whom they are very important. But I think... And, and I think that was part of the motivation for my project because I really wanted to live at a local Buddhist temple to really see, not in order to kind of position myself at the center of the community life. I was more thinking, okay, if I am looking from the temple out, I can see where the temple is on the community map and which networks go through it and which don't. And I think that... The Buddhist temples definitely have a role, even if we were to say a symbolic one, because there is a sense, and that is something that often came through in the interviews, people were, first of all, very sad about the fact that schools were closing. That was the biggest strategy for the local community. The fact that the school is closing, which really means we are getting less and less children. We can't even maintain an institution to bring up the next generation because guess what? We don't need one. There isn't one. Mm. So that was the biggest strategy. And I think when I ask about temples, it was really interesting because people often said like that they don't want to do all of the mendokusai, like all of the annoying things that you need to do for the temple to stay open, for the temple family to, you know, keep their living costs supported and so on and so forth. To an extent, because very often Buddhist priests have to work outside um, of the temple to actually maintain their family, but, but it's to keep the temple budget, if, if that makes sense. But, but at the same time, they said, as much as this is annoying, when I then said, okay, so if you don't want to support the, the temple, what's going to happen when, when it closes down? It's like, oh, no, 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 no. This is, no, no, no. We still think it's important to keep it open because it's, if we have still an operational school, operational temple, operational post office, that means our community is still doing okay. Okay. Yeah, and I guess given the social role of temples as being the last 
stop, if you will, in someone's lifetime that they are yeah. they work they function as a site of funerals and memorialization. That yeah. in that sense, you could say that temples would be would be the last social institute to go. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I, I think I think you you said a really important thing uh, in the sense that um, yeah, with Buddhist temples being the ones responsible for okay, so what's going to happen to me when I'm you know when I'm ill when I when I'm dead and who's going to remember me and and sorry for using a very blunt statement here but but I think that the point is that <laughs> people are concerned that if temples are not there who's going to remember them, right? Who's going to do that process? Who's going to make sure that they families keep to the commitment and so on and so forth. So um, I have talked about it um, elsewhere um, during recent talks of, of people trying to actually sort of move the responsibility for memorialization of them and their family sort of lines to Buddhist temples as the final stop by, you know, choosing Buddhist temples to store their ashes there rather than in the family grave. That's one of the aspects, and I think in that sense it is important. Whether they are the last to go, I don't think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> some, some, yes. But we are seeing a lot of temple closures. And I think the temple where I lived specifically, so I lived in one local Buddhist temple and I sort of did research in 19 other local temples in that area as well. And I think that there was one specific case where the Buddhist temple closed fairly recently. And what happened, we had like a three-way split. So one set of people went to one local temple. They basically moved their affiliation. The other set chose another one. So there were two sort of neighboring temples. And the third group just didn't just didn't bother, just said like, okay, mm. thank you, thank God, uh, oh, thank the Buddha, you know, we're free. Mm. We don't have to keep that <laughs> uh, connection going. So I think that temple mergers are the first sort of step, if that makes sense. So a lot of Buddhist priests who have been interviewing in Hiroshima, but also in Kyushu and in Gifu, they were talking about the fact that the next step for my temple, especially if there were a smaller temple, is that we're going to merge with a bigger one. Or we're going to sort of, you know, outsource the provision to another bigger temple in the, in the region. And I think that's what's going to happen. It's just that some communities just will not be able to sustain the local temple. Um, yeah. And for those, it's going to be a hard, you know, at the end of the day, you have to survive economically because... That, that's a really important aspect of it. And if the region is, you know, regional sort of socioeconomic structure is failing, it's very difficult to maintain any other institution, including religious ones. Mm. Can I just ask what um, becomes of the physical temple once it's been closed? <laughs> it's such, such a purpose built you know, building. Uh, I'm just curious what, yeah. what, what becomes of it. Is it just abandoned or is it repurposed or? Sure. I mean, we have a lot of examples um, of um, definitely in the Japanese countryside, a lot of just abandoned ones, which have been just left to their own devices. And I visited some really like uh, remote uh, sort of mountain temples where community around it died out or, you know, there's only one uh, person left <laughs> uh, in wow. the community, which is which is not funny, uh, really. It's yeah, it's it's sad, but um so, so very often those buildings just, you know, become overgrown with 
with um, with plants and kind of reclaiming of the landscape you could you could you could call it um, and and they just fall apart there are also temples that are still operational and are un unable to um, kind of do the maintenance work so I have visited quite a few temples where they said you know we can no longer afford to repair certain things in the main hall of the temple so we have moved the community practice into the smaller room and we we will we will never repair it and because it's not structurally safe to be in that main hall we are not using it but i also encountered interesting examples where a buddhist there was a um, local community invited uh, a new religious movement um to take over the temple oh wow uh, and basically, I think the agreement was struck that um, they allowed to use it as long as they will keep praying for the ancestors of everyone in the community. So as long as they keep, you know, um, because it was a Buddhist new religious movement, so obviously that that affinity was was needed there. But yeah, that was one example where it was repurposed. I think there, there, there have been conversations of a couple where there were talks of trying to use it for something else. But at the same time, space or buildings are not really issue in yeah. the rural context. So whilst in, you know, if, if a temple closes in Tokyo, they are sitting on the prime real estate at the end of the day. So they can sell it or they can, you know, whatever, they can rent it out and they will make money. In rural context, it's just another empty house on the horizon mm. so in a way i know it sounds very harsh but yeah very often they just abandoned like a lot of houses that it happens to other buildings too like a lot of schools are just standing empty as well which is a really bizarre view when you have like wild boars or deers on the on the school grounds that haven't yeah. been used in in a few years so yeah so it's kind of similar um yeah must, similar. yeah it must be very strange seeing these ruins of our time almost for yeah. future generations but yeah absolutely on that cheery note um, yes sorry <laughs> what do you believe the future of buddhist temples within communities to be in japan are you aware of increased engagements in these times of crisis uh, or will active engagements with buddhist temples be limited to the local elderly population okay well i think that in the in the, in the rural context i think that what i want to say is that I don't want to be like a party pooper, sorry. <laughs> um, but I don't think the news is good. But what did surprise me, because when I first went into the field, I really was going out. I was talking about researching survival of Buddhist, you know, Buddhist communities. But what I was really expecting to find was just decay and probably I'll be able to just, you know, write another dissertation talking about decline of Buddhism um, in a bit more detail ethnographically, you know, but I was really surprised to find out how much life there was, still was and how much will there still was. And also, I think I need to give credit to local Buddhist fam um, families too, because very often they are so active and they really, well, active, they determined some of them are active, some of them are less active, but they are determined to kind of keep going for as long as they practically can. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we, we, we're going to face Buddhist revival. I really don't think so. Uh, because unless we rebuild the regional communities and the Buddhist temples sort of readjust 
the audience, the target audience, at least, you know, we have a Buddhist temple to deal with the dead, um, but do other things. And, you know, many other, many temples are doing more. Uh, so I don't want to kind of um, take that away, uh, away, but nonetheless, I mean, the associated tar target audience is elderly and, you know, looking after the dead and not after the living. That's the kind of the image, uh, which still uh, persists. Um, so I don't think it's going to be necessarily a happy ending because we would have to rebuild the communities and then have a transformation of an outlook and also rejigging of the whole structures um, because Buddhist local temples, um, individual temples, they even though they're technically independent, they exist in a broader structure where they also responsible and they have a relationship with the headquarter temple in Kyoto very often. So that's not so great. But on the other hand, we also seeing a lot of younger priests and I don't really want to get like maybe too excited and call it like, you know, they experimenting and doing things, but there are plenty of examples where, and maybe more of them in urban areas, but not limited to urban areas because I've encountered this in rural contexts too, where they are trying to do something else or they're trying to connect with other audience or with people who are moving into the countryside and try and find a way of bringing them into the fold of, you know, establishing a connection, which might not necessarily be Buddhist immediately, uh, but maybe, you know, um, work with the local uh, vendors, because you can see a lot of U-turners, I-turners, so people who are returning from the cities or returning back to the countryside and starting the businesses there, very often in agriculture. So maybe, you know, Buddhist temples want to collaborate um, and stage something like, you know, food fair. Or I know one local Buddhist temple that is venturing out by producing sake, and sort of bringing people in that way. Uh, another temple that is uh, doing ceramics. So they have actually a pottery workshop and they do like pottery shows. And that's the way for them to start bringing sort of different audience and maybe get people interested through different ways and, and try to create a slightly different image of Buddhism. But I think, okay, I don't think Buddhism is gonna die, but it's definitely in crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note it's been a wonderful episode Paulina thank you for joining me it's been a pleasure thank you very much thanks for having me you can find a link to Paulina's research profile in the description below next week we'll be joined by Professor Hugo Dobson Professor of Japan's International Relations at the University of Sheffield to discuss the cancelled 46th G7 summit we will explore the summit's controversies and changes, reflecting the seismic political changes seen within G7 nations over 2020, and what changes this predicts for the G7 in 2021. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>